Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is powerful. It is able to pierce uh, through everything that we are, Lord. It, it's a, it, it separates joints and marrow and, and it discerns our thoughts and intents, Lord. It cuts to the very heart of who we are. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not be um, apathetic as we approach your word today, but our, our ears, our hearts, our souls would be attentive to everything that you want to say to us, Lord. God, as I ask every week, I pray that you would um, somehow use me in all of my weakness and frailty to communicate clearly and accurately what your word says, Lord, and, and that uh, we would all be changed by it, Lord, that, that every single one of us from myself to the, to the last person in this room, Lord, would, would not leave here without uh, some uh, type of change, some type of transformation that's brought about by your very powerful word. And so we thank you for that. We exalt you in, your, in the preaching of your word and um, in our worship. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, most holy. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, I've got to say something before I start. It is awesome to see Deborah Bond sitting right there. Can we give her a hand? She is. I hope it's okay to say this as a preacher, but she has been on a round trip uh, to hell and back. And so um, I am very, very pleased to see you. Bless you. Glad you're here this morning. Um, so we've been doing this uh, series in, in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to continue that all the way through 2 Thessalonians. And I told you last uh, week or the week before that, that the first three chapters of this book um, are by and large, they're introductory. In other words, Paul is kind of catching up with this church. We've mentioned that a lot, so I won't go over all the details of that, but he had planted this church in Thessalonica uh, sometime before, and he would, because of persecution, he had to leave very quickly uh, with some work unfinished. And, um, and so he spent the first three chapters of a five-chapter book just introducing and, and kind of, uh, you know, explaining some things. The, the theological depth of the book is, is mostly found in chapters 4 and 5. But as I said a couple weeks ago, that's not to say that there's nothing for us here in um, this, uh, this, these first three chapters. And again, I hope you've, you've uh, noticed that. Um, but as I read this passage that we're going to talk about today, I had a thought. Um, it, it reminded me of some things, and, and, and I kind of formulated this thought like this, that there's nothing that I can imagine more discouraging to someone who is a believer, who's following Jesus, who is, is trying to be an obedient disciple, than to watch someone else who they love dearly as their faith fails. I, I hope that you've never had to experience that. But if you are a Christian for a long time, I suspect that you will see that. You'll see somebody who once seemed like they were heading you know, in the right path, and then they kind of fall apart at some point. I, I remember in the youth group where Ginger and I met, where uh, we met when we were 15 in this youth group, I had come to over to her church, and there was this girl there named Melissa who had come from an absolutely terrible situation at home, and everyone knew it. Everyone knew kind of what was going on. She was abused in different ways by her drunken parents. But we were all pleased that in spite of all that, Melissa was at church faithfully. She was always active in our youth group. And after I was born again, after I'd been at that church for about a year, after I became saved, 
Melissa and Ginger and a few others, we became kind of an inner circle. We were, we were kind of really tight-knit in our friendships, and we had a great time uh, growing up as teenagers. We traveled to uh, youth camps, and we went to Six Flags, youth, tra- youth trips to Six Flags. We'd hang out every Sunday night at our favorite pizza place after church, and we'd go to all these concerts together, and we just had a blast. But, but it was so much deeper than that, the relationship that we all shared. We would spend literally countless hours um, worshiping together and praying together and studying the scriptures together. And it was a really important time in my life, and, and those relationships were really vital to me. But when Ginger and I were about, I'd say about 18 years old, um, Melissa's demeanor changed Markedly, It was obvious that something was different. And she started to hang out with boys who um, it became obvious were using her sexually. And, and she became increasingly distant from us, from her group. And it wasn't long until Melissa just stopped showing up to anything at all. Well, Ginger and I, along with our few other friends, we weren't going to sit idly by and just watch as this happened to our friend. And so one night, a few of us loaded up in the church van, and we we went out to the edge of town to the sketchy bar where her mother worked, and she would hang out. And we tried to appeal to her to re-engage with Jesus, desperately tried to to appeal to her. But I'm sad to report to you that all of our pleas, all of our pleading fell on deaf ears. And Melissa decided that she was going to embrace what she thought the world was giving her. And it wasn't long before we just didn't see her or hear from her anymore. She was gone. And I remember coming back to the church on that night, but she refused to listen to us. And and I was devastated. I was just broken in ways that I cannot explain to you. I I remember I I got alone in the parking lot, and I'm not ashamed to tell you, I just sobbed, just sobbed, just for a long time. I don't know how long, but I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because I knew that her soul was in jeopardy. What she had, what she had been given, she just forsook it and went, went a different way. My agony was incredibly deep, and I'll never forget, as long as I live, the way I felt that night. But there is, now that I've got you all depressed, there's a flip side to all of this. There's nothing in this world more refreshing to the heart, to the soul of a believer, than to know that those who are around them, those who are walking with Christ, are making it. They might have looked incredibly fragile or hopeless at one point in their journey, but when you find out that their faith has real roots, man, your whole soul rejoices at the encouragement of that. And and uh, as opposed to what I just said, I hope that you experience that all the time. People that, that you might think, man, there's these, these people don't have a snowball's chance and they just get stronger and deeper and, and, and more mature. That's a wonderful thing. I was in a different youth group before I came to Ginger's church and I had a friend named Nate. And Nate claimed to believe, like we all did, and, and he knew me well before I was a Christian. Now, Nate, however, was a partner in all of my depraved activities, of which there were many. And when we went to church, this is just to give you a little taste of this, Paul, Narcy, pay attention. When, when he and I went to church, we would compete. As soon as we walked in the door, we would compete to see who could make our sweet, 
female youth leader cry first. I'm not making that up. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you should have said that louder. Um, uh, It was a really horrible thing to do. We were disrespectful, self-centered, rebels without a cause, and we loved it. We loved that identity of being the bad boys. When our family moved to Ginger's church, (coughs) Nate and I stayed in contact. But when Jesus saved me, as this probably happened to you and every Christian you've ever known, guess what happened? My relationship to Nate started to slowly change, and we began to slowly drift apart. We'd still hang out occasionally, but the more I fell in love with Jesus, the more troubled and convicted I was by Nate's sinful behavior and his influence on me. And in truth, he was unsaved and utterly unconcerned about it, couldn't care less. But after not seeing him for almost 25 years, earlier this year, I got to spend a few uh, we, a few days with him, rather, in May, and I found, this is what I found. I found someone who absolutely loves Jesus, is absolutely following him. He's wrestling with the same issues of truth, same issues of the gospel that I am, trying to be a good dad, trying to be a, a, a good husband and, and, and uh, faithful to, to Christ. And, and when I went to him, I had no idea who he would be in his 40s. But I was so happy to come home and tell Ginger about the transformation that had taken place in him and the way that he was genuinely living for Jesus. So that's the happy side of the story. And I imagine, I can only imagine that my joy was kind of like Paul's when he heard Timothy's report. Timothy comes back and he says, hey, these Thessalonians are knocking it out of the park. They're doing great. They're doing wonderful. He told them they're pressing forward in Christ. Let's read that part of the passage Daryl read to us again. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, he's writing this in a letter to the Thessalonians. Now that Timothy has come to us from you, he's brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason brothers in all our distress and affliction we've been comforted uh, comforted about you through your faith paul calls timothy's um report back to them good news the same root word that we use for the gospel this is good news this is newsworthy of rejoicing Paul had been gravely concerned. We've mentioned this over and over about the persecution that it had, it had discouraged the new believers and that it had scattered this church that had just started when he was abruptly whisked out of town. But Timothy reported, thank goodness, that the exact opposite had taken place. And they were holding on. They were clinging to their faith. And furthermore, instead of resenting Paul's departure from them, uh, as though they were just abandoned, uh, uh, and that's what Paul feared that they would feel, that they, they were just left, they sincerely missed him. And, and he said to them, you always remember us kindly and long to see us. They felt, the Thessalonians felt, exactly like Paul did. This is good news. When Paul wrote this letter, he'd been run out of Thessalonica. I want you to get this. He'd been run out of Thessalonica because of the riot incited by the Jews. We've talked about that. But the Jews followed him to Berea, the sister city of Thessalonica. And, and, and so he had to flee there too. He had to go from there and he went on to Athens. Well, in Athens, he was mocked for proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. From there, he traveled to Corinth where he was opposed and he was reviled and he was arrested. And one of his hosts, that was, that was working with him there was severely beaten. So Paul had nonstop persecution 
since he was in Thessalonica. Non-stop. And even before that, when Philippi, before he came to Thessalonica, he'd been, you guys know the story, he'd been arrested, he'd been beaten, he'd been in prison. But he says two things, two things that we're going to give our attention to about the persecution that he experienced at this time. And I want you to get this. He says this, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. What is he saying there? First, Paul mentions all our distress and affliction. He reminded the Thessalonians earlier in this chapter how when he had been with them in their city, that they were destined for tribulation. It was entirely unavoidable. But now he assures them that he, the apostle, the grand poobah of their Christian faith here, the, 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 uh, the apostle is not exempt from anything that they're suffering. But they are in this thing together, and he shares their experience of suffering and loss for Christ. It's not merely their distress and affliction. Hey, God, sorry you're going through that. But no, it is our distress and affliction. Why does that matter? Because there is much to be said about laboring and even suffering together in some form of community. You hear me? Would you rather... Hard times are inevitable. Would you rather face them alone or with people that love you? There's much to be said about laboring and suffering together in community. A soldier knows this. A husband and his wife know this. And certainly, certainly this is one of the great benefits of church life as well. Remember what Solomon wrote? We usually read this at like weddings and things, but Solomon wrote this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. They labor together. But watch this. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily or quickly broken. We need each other. And that was part of, uh, of what God's grand design in the church was. He also tells them that, that, um, that Timothy and Silas and himself, they're all greatly encouraged and comforted by their perseverance in the faith that they're keeping on, keeping on. Even in the midst of harassment, in the midst of trouble, there are a couple reasons why this makes them so happy. He says comforted. They're comforted by the fact of their perseverance. First, that perseverance confirms the genuineness of the Thessalonians' faith in Jesus. It proves that what they experienced was a genuine spiritual rebirth and not just a religious decision that they made because of Paul's power of persuasion. In chapter 1, Paul affirms this. He says, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Their legitimate conversion is proven by their determined perseverance. The fact that they haven't quit, that they won't give up, proves that the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has done something transformative in their lives. He's done something different. Someone who is just 
kicking the tires on Jesus and looking at all their spiritual options, they, they would not have last through the kind of trials that the Thessalonians were facing. They would fold like a house of cards. But these guys, these Thessalonians have continued to press forward in spite of it all. Next, their continuing in the faith confirms that Paul, Silas, and Timothy labored effectively while they were among them. Now, I want to make something real clear here. I've said it before, but I want to say it again. This is really important to know because we, we talk a lot and we we're even talking more and more about encouraging you to be intentionally proclaiming the gospel to your friends, neighbors, co-workers, fellow students. We want you to do that. But, but here's what I want you to know. We are responsible to proclaim the gospel faithfully and accurately. But don't mistake this. We, you and I, are not responsible for the results of that proclamation. We're not responsible for that. We're, in other words, none of us are going to stand before God and give account to whether people listened and responded to our proclamation of the gospel. Only whether we actually proclaimed it. You may preach like Jeremiah in the Old Testament for years and have everyone turn, uh, turn away from you and not listen to, to the gospel you preach. That is not a sin. The sin is to not proclaim it in the first place. That's where the problem results. It's God alone who moves on hearts and calls dead sinners to life. You and I don't even have the ability to do that. It has to be God. Having said that, though all of this is true, it is really, really encouraging when we see that the seed that we have planted is bearing fruit to the glory of God. Amen? Man, that's a wonderful feeling. You can't, there's nothing in the world that can replace that feeling. And this was the reason for Paul and the others to rejoice. The Thessalonians were responding to the gospel that was preached to them. And because of this, even though you might say, well, I preach, they didn't respond. Keep preaching because it's, it's right and it's good that we should pray that God would bless our efforts to let this whole world know who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so pray for it. Pray, God, I'm planting seed here. I pray that it brings forth a bountiful harvest to your glory, Lord God. Paul says this incredible statement. I love this. This is, this is illustrative of a pastor's true heart, or let me say that differently, a true pastor's true heart. He says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. I love that. He's saying, the thing that makes me able to go on another day is the fact that you guys are making it. When Timothy brought word of the Thessalonians' endurance, Paul and the others were able to breathe a huge sigh of relief. It reminded me when I was reading that of Proverbs 25, 25. It says, like water or, or like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. What a great word. And they got good news from their friends so far away from them, and it just refreshed their souls. But think about what he's ultimately saying that he wanted for them. There, there's more to that than this. Whether there were going to be many of them or few of them, Paul wanted to see these people in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica, rather, he wanted to see them stand fast in the Lord. Now think about that. He wanted to see them stand fast in the Lord. He was not going to be satisfied with them making a decision. Listen, that wasn't enough for him. 
You, I've seen it a thousand times, and so have you if you've been in the church long enough. People can, can come very emotionally and make decisions, and you never see them again. He didn't want them to make decisions. He wanted them to stand fast. He didn't want them to join his club, his Christian club. He wanted them to stand fast in the Lord. And this is what we define in the church as discipleship. It's when we, when we go from just being a, a, a regular attender or someone who casts our vote for Jesus and we say, no, 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 that's not good enough. I am going to be an, an obedient follower of Jesus. It wasn't enough that they believed Paul or were meeting together. Paul's hope that this whole group of people that he loved so much would be obedient followers of Christ. And he even says that he lived for this. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. What an incredible heart for this pastor had for the flocks that were in his care. Listen to what he said similarly to another group of Christians in Galatia. In Galatians 4.19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, if you are a lady in this room who has had a baby, you know the serious weight that those words carry. He's saying, I am in labor pains until you are born again anew, till Christ is literally formed in you. His desire to see the church shaped into the image of Christ was like labor pains to him. What he's saying is, I hurt until you're made new. I'm in pain until you are made new. We need more pastors like that. May we never be guilty and, and by the way, we need more Christians like that too. May we never be guilty of being satisfied with the people we love that we're sharing the gospel for. Let us never be satisfied because we led them through a prayer or, or that they started coming to church or that they made a few moral alterations and became better citizens. I pray that God lays a heavy burden on all of us to see each other transformed in holiness and in our thinking and in greater worshipfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to stand fast. And then he says this, he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? The persistence of the Thessalonians' faith inspired worship in Paul and the others. Think about that. If I were to ask you right now, right now, I'm not going to do it so you don't have to respond to this, but if I were to ask you right now, who in this room has troubles? Every hand would go up. That's why I'm not going to do it. It's a moot point. You all have on one level, physically, Pastor Dave prayed about physically, relationally, financially, you all have some problems. You have some troubles. But look at this. Paul is getting beaten in every city he goes through, arrested, persecuted. But what happens when he hears about his brothers and sisters in Christ doing well, it inspires worship in him. For what thanksgiving can we, turn to, can we return to God for you? Just seeing them do well inspires him to worship God. When he considered what was taking place so far away from him, he offered thanksgiving to God. He was filled with joy because the kingdom of Jesus was advancing as people were growing up into Christ. And that was enough. That's all he needed. He didn't need, you know, soft lights and, and uh, emotional music. He just needed to know that his brothers and sisters were, were making it for Jesus. And he worshiped. So I ask you a question. It's a hard question, but are you and I... Because of those troubles that we all have, 
Are you and I even aware when our brothers and sisters in Christ are thriving or breaking through? Are we even aware of it? Are they even on our radar enough for us to notice when they're scaling the mountains that are before them? When we hear of them growing in grace, does it elicit anything more than an apathetic yawn from us? In American churches, sadly, that's not usually what we focus on. We, we tend to focus on how many people show up, how many dollars they potentially bring with them. Peter Lord, who we just love around here, says that we only concern ourselves these days with counting noses and nickels. But the only real metric... That should concern ourselves, or that we should concern ourselves with, rather, is the same one that Paul considered. When you look around, don't say, well, there's not enough people, there's not enough money. Uh, the, the metric we should concern ourselves with is the one Paul considered. Are people growing? Are they becoming more like Jesus? Do they love the Bible more and surrender to what it says? Is the sacrificial love of the saints for each other increasing? That's how you know a church is healthy. That's how you know. To be this kind of church, it's important that we focus not merely on the weep with those who weep command of Romans 12, 15, but also, that's very important, don't get me wrong, but we also got to focus on the rejoice with those who are rejoicing. That's part of the body. That's how we relate to each other and serve each other. We should daily offer thanksgiving Not just as we see God bring new people in, but we should offer thanksgiving as we see God save, as we see God sustain, as we see God deliver and heal and infill and mature those who share with us in our fellowship and our community. And even if we're enduring at that very time our own trials, even if we're enduring trials and waiting for our own deliverance, we should still give thanksgiving for those who are being delivered and rescued and saved and infilled and matured and healed. Paul said this, We pray most earnestly, night and day, most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This joy of Paul's that I've been describing, it drove him to his knees as he prayed two specific things for the Thessalonians. First, Paul prayed earnestly that they would be reunited. He wanted to be with them again. It's wonderful to hear of good news, but there is no comparison whatsoever to sharing in it. All right, I'm going to ask a very specific group of people to do something. If you have grandchildren, raise your hand. Hold it up so I can see it. Okay, lots of, lots of grandmas, grandpas here. When your grand, This is my uh, illustration for hearing of good news versus sharing in it. When your grandchildren were born... Would you have preferred to get a phone call announcing the baby's arrival? Or would you have rather been there with the new mom, with the baby, on delivery day, holding that baby in your arms? Which would you have preferred? See, when people genuinely love each other, presence, actual physical presence, just completely trumps distant communication. It just, there's just no comparison, right? I mean, you know, um, I, I, uh, I, when my kids graduated high school, when they were baptized, any, any kind of big, uh, you know, landmark in their life, I didn't say, hey, see if you can get somebody to film that on their iPhone and send me the video. No! 
I was there. I was screaming. When they graduated, everybody in the, uh, in the USA heard me the loudest because I make noise when good things happen to my kids. There's nothing like being there. And how can people want their church? I'm not picking on anybody because you're all here. But how can people want their church to be well thought of in the community or successful in its mission but rarely show up? They're missing the point. There's, the point is our fellowship. The point is our, our community to the glory of Jesus Christ. How can... Uh, I can't figure it out. See, I can't function that way. And I hope you can't either. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not judging anybody. You're all here. I just hope you can't function that way. See, my love for you and the hope that I have for the gospel to constantly impact all of our lives compels me to want to be with you whenever possible i like you and as i always say i like you i love you and there's not a stinking thing you can do about it it is life (laughs) ditto it is life it is absolutely life-giving to me to be walking beside you absolutely life-giving but see paul wanted to be with the thessalonians not merely because he missed hanging out with them but because he wanted to as he says supply what was lacking in their faith He's not saying that they weren't saved enough. He wasn't saying, well, you're almost there. I've got to supply what's lacking so you can get across the finish line. No, no, no. He, uh, it, when he speaks of what's lacking, uh, you know, th- that's not what he means. His, their eternal spirits were as saved as Paul's was. There, there was no doubt about that. In Hebrews 7.25, I love this scripture. It says, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. That means all the way through. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession of them. So he's, he's saying not that they're not saved enough when he talks about what's lacking, but he's still saying that they are not complete. He's saying that they don't understand everything yet, that he desperately wants to share with them. They haven't grasped all the ramifications of their faith In chapters 4 and 5, we'll see that they had some real misunderstandings, for example, about the coming of the Lord. And on some level, may shock some of you, but this describes every single one of us. Everybody just get real comfortable with the fact that there is something lacking in your faith. I didn't hear a single amen, and even Max said what, so... Every single one of us, not every single one of you, every single one of us has something lacking in our faith. Every one of us. We're all lacking in one area or another. Some people are deeply wounded from something that happened and they desperately need healing. Many of us don't understand the full message of the Bible. We grab a scripture here, grab a scripture there, and that's a lack in your faith if you don't understand the big picture story of the Bible. Some of you struggle to comprehend uh, specific doctrines that the Bible teaches. Others of you just need to mature. You need to grow up. You need to learn how to stop acting like spiritual babies and grow up into Christ. But no matter which one of those or many others describe you, we all need something. We all need something. We, you know, I desperately need to be corrected. I desperately need to be grown in the Lord. I, I, I need all that. And that's why Jesus built the church. He, he planned a faithful community 
that would confess the same central truth. Jesus is Lord. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose again on the third day. He sent the Holy Spirit to fill and empower us. Central truths that we all can agree on. But uh, under those central truths, there's a bunch of people with different strengths, different weaknesses, and we all can help each other with those strengths and weaknesses in a thousand different ways. So if you're not taking your strength and helping somebody, why not? And if you're not looking at your weakness and finding somebody who can help you with your weakness in this community of faith, why not? That's what we're here for. There's two ways, two ways, I'm going to make it real simple for you, that you should never, ever participate in church. Don't ever come to church in one of these two ways. The first is to come thinking, and it doesn't matter if you're the pastor or if you are someone who just showed up for the first time this morning, never come to church thinking that you have plenty to give but have nothing that you can receive from your brothers and sisters. Don't ever come to church like that. It's wrong to think so arrogantly. If you get frustrated, this happens a lot. If you get frustrated because you think no one here is listening to you or no one is recognizing your awesome gifts. If, you're, if, if that's you, let me, let me interpret that from the Holy Spirit for you. The Holy Spirit is telling you, you might need to shut up. Y'all still love me? You might need to be quiet. And receive what the other members of the body are offering you. We don't tend to like grooming celebrities around here. Everybody okay with that? We're all in this thing together. We're all in this thing together. I need you. Here's the downside. You need me. Second mistake, so that's the first mistake is coming here and imagining that you have absolutely nothing to give. I have been blessed, and I mean this, I'll give you examples. I have been blessed equally, equally, by the youngest babies, the newest believers in Christ, every bit as as much as I've been blessed by the oldest, experienced, faithful saints. The perspective of recent believers can be incredibly refreshing. So if you've been saved here less than, say, a year, don't hold back. Don't hold back. We need you. Sister, brother, we need you. Right, Chris? Yep. We need you. Don't withhold it. Paul ends this section with this incredible benediction. I've been getting in the habit of Uh, proclaiming a benediction over you at the end of of my sermons, and I'm going to do that again today. But I want to read it to you, so you'll get it twice today, but I want to read this to you. Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct direct our way to you. The Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul concludes chapter 3 with this pastoral prayer, this beautiful pastoral prayer that whether or not, they want to be together, but whether or not they are ever reunited face to face, that God would cause them to grow in their love for each other in a couple different ways. 
That's how he ends. He says, this is my prayer for you guys, that you grow in love. First, Paul prays that the Lord would make them increase and abound in love for one another. We've talked about this, so I won't belabor the point. But the church is first and foremost, we're not a big advertisement for sinners to come in and get their life fixed. We love it when it happens. But the church is first and foremost a place where believers are to be built up, to be trained, to be encouraged, to be corrected. This is done much more effectively when you and I have a deep heart of love for each other, willing to forgive each other, willing to serve each other, willing to lift each other up in prayer. And if we do that, I guarantee you that the lost will find out about it. And that's my next point. None of us uh, can, can imagine that this is going to happen automatically. And, and so second, Paul prays that this church, as they're growing in love for one another, watch this, would also love all. That's the word he uses, that they would love each other and all. The love for one another that we're cultivating should be our very best offer of outreach to that world out there. It should absolutely be the thing that, that is infectious and draws people and says, I want to be a part of what that church is doing because look at the way they love each other. Look at the way they serve each other. People get ticked off at each other and they forgive each other. It's incredible what's happening there. It should be our best outreach offer. We should love and serve each other so beautifully that those on the outside cannot help but to be drawn to share in that, to be a part of it with us. And none of us should imagine that we can accomplish this kind of love based on our mutual affinities, you know, I don't go, well, I like the same kind of music they do. We, we go to the same kind of movies. Our kids are in the same school. Those are great, but they're not the thing that, that causes us to love each other, those mutual affinities. And, and guess what? Sure, willpower isn't, isn't you know, going to help us either. I don't come in here every Sunday morning and say, God, I'm going to love Glenn Polk if it kills me, Lord. And, and, and sometimes it feels like it's going to, Jesus, but, but somehow, help me. No, we don't do it by sheer willpower. We don't do it by mutual affinities. By the way, it's very easy to love Glenn. That's why I picked him because um, we don't do it by those reasons. We should do, and because we don't, and because we can't, we should do what Paul did. And what was that? He prayed that this kind of love for each other would be present and ever-increasing among us. It's not going to happen because of my willpower or because I like the same things you do. It's only going to happen when the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, transforms my heart to see you, not as a guy I go to church with, not the, a lady that's nice when we see each other one day a week, but I see you as my brother and my sister in Jesus Christ. In an environment where this kind of love is evident and increasing... Paul says this. He says, God will establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. And this means, get this, some of you are struggling with all kinds of sin. All kinds of sin. Some of you tell me about it. Others of you are struggling secretly. But you're struggling with all kinds of sin. In fact, you would die of embarrassment if I just started to list off some of the sins you're struggling with. But I want you to get this because this is important. What Paul is saying here, as our love increases, 
that it will, our hearts will be established in holy, blameless in holiness before our God and Father. This means that our holiness will actually increase as our love increases. If you can come up to a different conclusion from what Paul just wrote, tell me. But that's what I'm reading. He's saying that as I love you more, my holiness towards God is going to increase. It, and it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me because it is surely harder to sin against God if I'm growing in love for him more every day. Does that seem like a reasonable conclusion? Similarly, it becomes much more difficult to sin against you, my brother and sister in Christ, if I'm daily asking God to help me to love you and moving towards you, not just with my words, but moving towards you with accompanying acts and actions of affection, accompanying actions of sacrifice. Paul says that growing in this kind of love prepares us for the coming of the Lord. And we're going to tackle that when we get into chapter 4. So I'm going to ask our communion helpers to come with up here right now and prepare the tables. But I just want to ask you um, to once again, we, we've talked over the last you know, couple years about many ways to approach this table. And I've said this over and over, but I want to refresh your memory. Com- communion, that word means common union. You and I are in this thing together. We're in this thing together. Now, you might think, I don't want to be in it with you. Well, you know, sorry if you're here. We're going to chase you. We're going to pursue you. We're going to keep trying to love you. We're going to, we're going to uh, pray for the best for you and all of God's goodness to be poured out on you. And, and hopefully you'll like that. And you'll want to be a part of that. But, but so as you come today, and we've asked you to do this a few times in the last few weeks, I want you to come with a deep-hearted awareness of who you're coming with. Now, Jesus is always the centerpiece of our communion. It is a representation of his blood, of his broken body that, that unites us. We can't be, like I said, we can't be united just because we all come to the same church. We're united because we've all been redeemed by Jesus. Some of you were good kids. I was a rotten kid. Some of you, uh, you know, have, have played by the rules all your life, and some of you have, uh, still aren't playing by the rules. But if we're saved... Randy, if we're saved, then, then I want you to know that, that we're saved not because of anything that we've done or how similar we are. We're saved because Jesus Christ shed his blood and, broke, and, and had his body broken so that you and I could be one. One. And so think about that as you're coming today. I've, I've invited you twice in the last month to, as you're coming, to offer to those who you're in line, don't just be focusing on you know where your place in line is. Just offer a word of encouragement, a simple prayer, just just a, gra- a word of gratitude to say, "Hey, I am really, really glad to be a part of this body with you," and mean it. And you you don't know what that might do for somebody who's really struggling today. So I'm just going to invite you to that. Would you all stand with me? I'm going to read the words of institution, and then we're going to pray. And I'm going to keep it very simple today. I just want you to come. And, and focus on the fact that there are brothers and sisters in here who desperately need you. But that's only half of it. You need them as well. You desperately, 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 desperately need them as well. If you have, are not someone who is confident that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have obediently followed his word and, and, and 
uh, made him the Lord of your life, then I want to invite you to do that this morning. As simple as crying out to him. We talk about this sometimes, but many churches have made a lot of kind of hoops to jump through to come to Jesus. And, and you can do it right now in a matter of seconds, standing right there. You can say, hey, Lord Jesus, I know I'm living apart from you and I want to make you the Lord of my life. And in that simple prayer, he will come and he will be your Lord. Now, there, that's, that's, there is one other thing you got to do. You got to come tell one of us because remember, we're in this together. And if you're just kind of being a lone ranger in Jesus out there, then you don't have a community. You don't have a body. So if you make that decision today, would you please just come tell me? We're not going to make you do anything. We're not going to sign you up for automatic drafts to give to the church or anything like that. We just want you to, we just want to know that you're following Jesus with us. So, so come and let us know. Let's still our hearts for just a second. <laughs> Paul writes these words to the Corinthians. He said, For I received from the Lord... But I also delivered to you that on the night the Lord, uh, on, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup." is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the stripes upon his back. Thank you for the crown of thorns that rested upon his head. Thank you for the nails that pierced his hands, his feet. Thank you for the spear that was thrust into his side. Because with every lash, with every nail, with every thorn, with, with that spear, every drop of blood that flowed from his precious body meant redemption for me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. And a wide open invitation was given that whosoever believes would be saved and rescued from this corrupt generation. And so, Lord, we have nothing to offer you but thanksgiving for what you have done. And, Lord, I pray that as you have done so much to make us a part of your family, that we this morning would come to remember what you have done with a great heart of gratitude for these others that you have made a part of our family together. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would just turn our hearts towards each other, Lord God, as we come to receive these elements. Father, we, we do so as a bold proclamation of your kingdom here. Lord, that he is enthroned until the day that you come and set up your kingdom here among us, Lord. And we long for that day. We say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are come to share with your brothers and sisters the body and blood of the Lord Jesus.